Afternoon, it's Friday the 1st of May 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, let's get straight on. We've got a lot to get through. Uh, and uh, latest numbers then. Uh, we're now over 3 million uh, global cases, 3.324 million global cases, 234,479 deaths globally, uh, over a million global recoveries. Uh, so that uh, leaves us with 2 million active cases at the moment, uh, 1.987 million of which are considered mild. And we're down to uh, 50,000 serious or critical cases. It was 56,000 on Wednesday. Now, uh, Patrick, good news because uh, Boris Johnson was back giving the live stream, the UK's uh, UK government live stream yesterday on this. Um, and, uh, well, one of the things that was different about it was that um, apparently two members of the general public got to answer questions. Uh, they were pre-recorded questions. And my question uh, about that was, were they members of the, uh, of the public or were they, in fact, uh, you know, maybe Tory activists or something like this? Handpicked, like you normally see at town hall meetings and it, things it, like this. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, nonetheless, uh, Laura Kunzberg from the BBC asked about the economy. Uh, does it just have to wait while uh, while all this sort of stuff is going on? Um, and uh, uh, well, this is what Boris had to say about that. We mourn for the economic damage as well that the country is sustaining, and for people's uh, the, the dreams of people's uh, that they're seeing shattered in their in their businesses, their anxieties about their their jobs. I, we totally understand that, but uh, it's it's absolutely vital, Laura, that if we're to bounce back as strongly as I think we can, that we don't have a second bout of this, a really second bad spike, because that would really do uh, the economic damage. And that's why uh, we've got an, an lasting economic damage. And that's why we've got to calibrate our measures so carefully. So again, Patrick, pushing this notion of a second spike. Now, we're going to come on to that in a little bit more detail in a second. Uh, but uh, he's saying that a second spike would cause long-term economic damage. Later in the programme, we're going to be looking at the economic damage which is being done. And we can discuss whether it's going to be long-term or not. I think it's looking pretty long-term. So again, to open up the economy will cause economic damage is basically what... Boris Johnson is, is saying that, that's the party line they're stick, sticking with. That's right? the party line they're sticking with. Uh, now, one area where they got a bit, uh, or at least Chris Whitty uh, got a bit upset was when uh, Robert Peston uh, asked about the death toll in the UK. He, Peston said the death toll in the UK is possibly the worst in Europe, certainly amongst the worst. Uh, as we head into the second phase, what lessons have you learned? Uh, from that seemingly worrying outcome. Now, of course, this is a, a pure common purpose here because we don't need to worry that uh, that anything was done incorrectly so long as we learn the lessons of it. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's, that's not the point of this. The point here is the fact that the UK is the worst in Europe. And in fact, if we look at today's uh, latest uh, Euromomo statistics, well, here's the, uh, the map of Europe uh, showing, this is for week 17, up to week 17, uh, and we can see that, uh, well, England in particular is absolutely by far and away the worst. Everybody else uh, recovering very nicely there. Uh, in fact, uh, many countries considered to have no excess mortality at this point in time. Uh, the UK, Scotland and England are certainly not so good. So uh, let's look at this in a little bit more detail. 
uh, we can see that uh, Northern Ireland, uh, it was really just a, a slight bump in the road for them, very similar to what happened uh, last year. Um, and uh, well, certainly over the peak, uh, UK Wales uh, doing very well as well. Uh, Scotland doing a little bit less well, but still over the peak, clearly over the peak, uh, but England uh, not so. Um, so again, if we look at the end of, the, of that graph, we find that uh, the peak much higher than anywhere else in Europe, uh, but also now on a plateau stage, which seems to be lasting longer uh, than other countries. What could be driving all of those excess deaths, Mike, in England that puts them at the top of the European league tables? Well, let, we've been talking about this on Wednesday. Let's just uh, remind ourselves of what the Office for National Statistics graph looked like. Very, very similar, uh, looking pretty horrendous in terms of excess mortality. And the point that we were making is if you actually uh, put a line on this graph, which shows the deaths which um, are attributed to COVID-19, that it's significantly below the total uh, excess mortality. So we're making this point on Wednesday. Therefore, the shaded area represents the lockdown deaths, uh, about 50% of the total deaths since uh, week 13. So potentially deaths that could be attributed to the lockdown itself. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but actually, that's only if you take into account the if you believe that the Office for National Statistics uh, results uh, or statistics are showing genuine uh, COVID-19 deaths or whether what's actually happening here is that people are being uh, given trip attribution of uh, COVID-19 when in fact they're dying of other things. Uh, I'm not blaming the Office for National Statistics about that. I'm suggesting that this is a result of the, the government policy about how attribution of, of, of death is, is made. Um, and, and so what we said was, well, if you, uh, if you look at uh, what Italy did, uh, where they went back and reviewed their statistics and they discovered that only 12% of the people that had been uh, given the COVID-19 uh, attribution actually had died or the COVID-19 could be shown to be a causative a cause of death, uh, then in fact, uh, what this graph might look like is more like this, uh, in which case that becomes, uh, that red shaded area becomes the number of excess deaths which could be attributed to lockdown. Um, now, of course, uh, as we've said, the UK, the worst in Europe, but actually the United States, Patrick, uh, doing something quite similar. So this is uh, from Worldometer, uh, the daily deaths uh, showing that, well, perhaps there was a peak a couple of weeks ago um, it looked like it was coming down again, but it seems to have plateaued out and in fact going back up again. So, so the United States in a similar situation. Yeah, well, topping 50,000 uh, fatalities uh, supposedly from COVID-19, Mike. And we're seeing more and more reports. In fact, a, a report from Project Veritas just came out last night uh, where multiple directors of funeral homes in New York City are on record. Uh, they've gone on the record to say that they're getting uh, bodies they know for sure did not die of COVID, but COVID was just put on the death certificate, almost like it's being done as a kind of routine right now in the United States. And if you amplify that, Mike, across 50 states, um, that's going to drive up the COVID death levels substantially. We're talking in the tens of thousands. So are the numbers we're looking at in terms of total deaths from, quote, COVID-19, how accurate are they? Are they off by 50%? Are they off by 30%? Are they off by 70%? Or in the case of Italy, as you quoted the Italian health officials, are they off by 85% or more? Um, I think, I think a, a public inquiry needs to happen 
uh, in countries like the UK where you have these unusually high uh, numbers of COVID deaths in the United States. Um, it's not a lot of data, Mike, that's impossible to go through and look by case-by-case -case basis. It's totally doable. Uh, they have the expertise, they have the manpower, they have the computing power uh, to do that sort of inquiry, that sort of audit. That needs to happen. Yeah, well, that, it absolutely needs to happen because what we've got to understand, nobody's, you know, this, in terms of the, the overall uh, statistics, uh, th those statistics are correct. Correct. The question is, where, what, what was the actual cause of death? Um, and if we're saying that the uh, cause of death uh, it was not COVID-19, then we've got to be asking questions about the lockdown itself. This is the key point, and this is why we keep uh, coming back to this. Now, uh, you're talking about uh, morticians in, in New York. Uh, we, we're just seeing all these, we, we covered this on Wednesday, but, but we're seeing this type of uh, tweet where people are clearly being uh, labeled as COVID-19 deaths when they're not. Uh, and as we also mentioned on Wednesday, of course, this report from a German laboratory saying that in, uh, on the 24th of April there, uh, 23rd of April, that uh, according to the World Health Organization, uh, that COVID-19 virus tests are now considered positive, even if the specific target sequence of the COVID-19 virus is negative. In other words, they are saying it's a positive result, even if the specific COVID-19 identifiers aren't there, but there is a coronavirus identifier there, which could be a common cold or some other type of coronavirus. So that's an important thing when we talk about attributions of death. Just to add to that, Mike, we've all, I've also seen reports, uh, we didn't put it up on screen, but where health officials are taking uh, diagnoses over the phone. Uh, they're talking to patients over the phone from the health services, and then they're putting down uh, marketing as COVID-19. Now, if that person uh, uh, proceeds and uh, their condition gets worse and they die at home, um, in some cases there's a possibility that it could be considered a COVID-19 mm -hmm. death, even if there is no test done, no autopsy done, and hasn't been actually seen by a doctor. This is the sort of abuse in terms of administrative procedures that's going uh, happening across these two markets that we're talking about in terms of the data. And we're talking about the US and the UK, but also in Europe as well, this could be a major problem. Right, but uh, perhaps this is uh, the most disturbing aspect of this at all. So this is HSJ, which is sort of the health services, uh, this health service journal, it's an official uh, National Health Service publication. Uh, unprecedented number of DNR orders for learning disabilities patients. Uh, and what they're highlighting here is the turning point, uh, which provides uh, supported living and residential care with people with learning disabil disabilities, has raised concerns to HSJ that it received 13 unlawful do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation or do not resuscitate orders from hospital specialists and GPs in the beginning of April, half of which came in one week. Uh, and this is, they say, more than they received in the previous year. Um, so here is uh, the chief executive of Turning Point, Julie Bass. She said, making an advanced decision not to administer CPR if a person's heart stops solely because they have a learning disability is not only illegal, it's an outrage. And, and the point that the article's making is that, that this has taken place even in the light of uh, comments made by uh, Stephen Powis, who's uh, national medical director, uh, this is going back to May 2019 when he, when he said the terms learning disability and Down syndrome should never be a reason for issuing 
a, a, a do not resuscitate order uh, or be used only to describe, uh, sorry, or be used to describe the underlying or only cause of death. Learning disabilities are not fatal conditions. And then just uh, a week or so ago, he said, uh, this is particularly important in regards to do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation orders, which should not only, ever, should, sorry, which should only ever be made on an individual basis and in consultation with the individual or their family. So Patrick, <laughs> what, what we seem to have, we, you know, there's been discussion over the last few weeks of uh, blanket do not resuscitate orders uh, within the health, health service. Uh, this is the first time I've heard of it being applied to people with learning dif uh, disabilities that, you know, that this is reminiscent of things that have happened in the past. Is this not eugenics uh, by fiat or by another name? Exactly. I mean, you call it what it is. It, this is eugenics policy, Mike. But are, are we seeing now a trend here, Mike, where uh, uh, regular rules, regulations, best practices are being discarded, thrown out the window uh, because of COVID-19? In other words, the, the, the rule book is being written in terms of uh, medical and healthcare procedures uh, for COVID-19. is a huge potential for uh, massive abuse here on so many different levels. All of these things would have been national scandals, Mike, just a few years ago. Any one of these vignettes that we're featuring uh, on these news programs every, every day. And for some reason now, this is being completely overlooked. They're just minor footnotes in the in the the shadow of this big pandemic so we're asking the question uh what really is going on here is there massive institutional abuse going on here uh, total neglect and uh you know are these institutions going to self-police themselves who's going to do this well indeed and, uh, and i think one of the things that should be uh causing people most concern of course this is the public statement made by professor stephen pass right you do not have blanket do not resuscitate orders uh, when in fact, on the ground, what we seem to have being implemented is blanket do not resuscitate orders. So uh, the, uh, the public statement says one thing, the reality says the other. Um, and then we've got this issue of excess mortality, which is not really being explained at the moment. And by the way, with regards to people with learning disabilities, there was a story uh, a few weeks ago, Mike, where they were saying, don't put them on intubation or on ventilators uh, if they have these disabilities. Mm. And now that's a double-edged sword, as we'll show you in a minute, mm. because that might actually save their life. Um, this is a story, Mike, that came out recently here. Uh, you might have seen this featured uh, in the mail uh, recently. Here is the uh, woman. She's whistleblowing on behalf of a nurse in the New York uh, hospital system. So what's driving up COVID deaths? We asked this question earlier. Well, here's one possible answer, Mike, uh, and it's ventilators. Uh, this is a horror movie. Nurse working on coronavirus frontline in New York claims the city is murdering COVID-19 patients by putting them on ventilators and causing trauma to the lungs. We're seeing these reports coming all the time, Mike, with regards to this. This isn't anything new, but this policy of ventilators and using ventilators as the kind of marquee set piece. Mm. Uh, this is a big thing in the United States with the press and the politicians and also in the UK, Mike, they're mm. really pumping up this idea of let's get more ventilators out there. We need more ventilators. And for weeks and weeks, this is what all the politicians latched onto from Donald Trump uh, to Matt, Matt Hancock and everybody else. And you see these dramatic pictures of the Nightingale Hospital with thousands of ventilators lined up mm. down these giant grand exhibition halls. But look at what we're finding. This is a recent US report, Mike, 
this is one of many reports, by the way. Most COVID-19 patients placed on ventilators died, New York study shows. And let's just look at the details on this, Mike. Among the 2,634 patients for whom outcomes were known, the overall death rate was 21%, but it rose to 88% for those who had received mechanical ventilation, says the Northwell Health COVID-19 Research Consortium. This is U.S. News and World Report here, Mike. So ventilators uh, akin to uh, almost a death sentence for a very large number of people. And so you combine this with the do not resuscitate orders, Mike, with the misdiagnosis of COVID-19. And you can see possibly, Mike, we're just making a hypothesis, you can see where these large kind of uh, gargantuan death totals might be coming from if you add a lot of these factors in. This obviously is gonna take a public inquiry well, or, I think or, or an inquest. Mike, because because what's really interesting, as we said earlier, this is the UK and the United States well ahead of everybody else in terms of this. The question is why? Why, why are the UK and the why is COVID nineteen more vicious to Americans and British? Does it does COVID does coronavirus have an axe to grind against the Anglo Saxon uh, population? This is the question. Of course, it doesn't. There's something going on within the US and the UK within their procedures, within their health system, within their politics within the attribution of diagnosis of, or cause of death of COVID-19, all of these things together um, it, it combined to give you the sort of outrageous kind of results that we're seeing right now. When is it going to end? Is this, a lot of people might, might think, Mike, that for some reason the US and the UK might also be very desperate to justify lockdown policy, especially countries, those two countries took a rather different approach uh, at the beginning of the crisis and then completely did a 180 degree turn under great public media pressure, Mike. So is this the result of what we're seeing here? Well, this is a good question. Now, as we said at the beginning of this little segment, Robert Peston had, had challenged uh, the, live, the presenters at the live stream on this. So, so let's just listen to what Chris Whitty's response was. It is also important though, from a health point of view, uh, to uh, emphasize to one other thing, which is uh, the, the, I've talked before of the fact, the fact you have the direct deaths from coronavirus, but also indirect deaths, uh, part of which is caused by the NHS and public health services not being able to do what they normally can uh, to look after people with other conditions. Uh, and it is therefore important at whatever point uh, we're at that the NHS not only has the R below one or at or below one at all times, uh, preferably significantly below in an ideal world, but, uh, but certainly below, but also that it has headroom, which allows it to operate uh, not just in doing the emergency things, which it has managed to maintain throughout the entire coronavirus first phase, uh, but also to do the other important uh, things like uh, urgent cancer care, uh, elective surgery and all the other things uh, like screening uh, in public health preventive terms, uh, which we need to do to keep people healthy. And of course, those are all the things which aren't happening. And and it's it's pretty uh, amusing that Chris Whitty is suddenly talking about these secondary causes of death since us and others have been raising this issue. Um, and he's trying to claim that he's been talking about this for a very long time. I'm not, I, I don't remember hearing him talking about it uh, three, four weeks ago. But anyway, nonetheless, he's saying it's vitally important for the National Health Service to be providing all the things that they normally do. But this is 
specifically what the National Health Service is effectively being shut down for all these other areas of care. People not, are not receiving their cancer care. People are not getting their screenings. Uh, people are dying from heart attacks and strokes in their uh, homes because they've been encouraged to believe that hospitals are dangerous places to go. And even if they go there, uh, the, the doctors and nurses are spending their time dancing around in front of a camera instead of actually providing any any care. So um, the, there are many, many questions, as you say, to be asked over the mortality rates in the UK, in the US as well. Uh, it may take an inquiry. Certainly, the government is uh, not going to be providing that unless they're pushed very hard to do so. Um, but uh, <laughs> there is much more going on here than COVID-19. So Chris Whitty just admitted uh, about collateral damage, the, the sort of collateral damage we've been talking about now for weeks and weeks and weeks, Mike. He's, he's really come and admitted that is a real problem. Yes. Unnecessary deaths within the NHS because of all of this over-focus on COVID-19. And you know, this might be a, a, an okay argument, Mike, if you were living in a vacuum. But unfortunately, uh, we don't live in a vacuum and the whole world is not on lockdown. But if you look at the media and you listen to politicians on their pulpits, you'd think that the entire planet is ha has a uniform lockdown policy and everybody else is facing the exact same problems and are worried about having their health services overrun, Mike. Well, actually, not every country is under lockdown. We just remind people again. Well, uh, let's give the, the latest statistics on this. So, that, so this is the latest uh, situation. Um, and uh, well, S Sweden, they're doing a little bit worse than they were a week ago, Patrick, but they're still nowhere near as bad as the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, Belgium. Right. Or sorry, just not Germany, Spain, Italy, Belgium. And, and uh, well, the US is something similar in terms of deaths per million, but nonetheless, uh, the, the, the picture remains pretty clear. Well, the, look at who on the red, Mike, of course, these are the lockdown countries here on the right-hand side. But, you know, the, the ones that you featured here have a particularly stringent lockdown policy, very strict in terms of public enforcement, social distancing, and so forth. And you look how high their results are. I mean, Belgium is just completely off the charts in terms of proportionality with some of the other countries. But where you have a slightly less uh, enforcement uh, in some of these countries, I know Germany in some provinces, Mike, has a bit of a softer touch. Uh, maybe that's not everything to do with their uh, low results. But over on the non-lockdown side, Mike, in the green here, uh, you can see they're doing as good or better. I think we can make that argument that non-lockdown countries are doing as good on average or better. Now, the case of Sweden, uh, there's some detail uh, in that conversation and there's some explanations as to why Sweden might appear to have a high total. But in reality, as a country of 10.5 million, Mike, uh, as of today's numbers, 2,000 uh, 600, roughly, uh, as of today's numbers there, Mike. So, you know, the difference between Sweden and its Scandinavian neighbors like Denmark, Finland, and Norway have approximately half the population of Sweden. Relatively, you're talking about a difference of 1,000 or mm. 1,500 fatalities for this. That, th that sort of difference, proportionally, Mike, is not a reason to go to a lockdown situation. So hence, Sweden doesn't have to worry about its health service being overrun. It doesn't need to save its NHS. Uh, it doesn't need to worry about a second peak. 
All of these are artificial problems and obstacles that have been created by the policy of lockdown itself. So now lockdown countries are stuck in a vicious cycle, Mike. This kind of death spiral that's been caused by instituting this policy in the first place. And mind you, Mike, this wasn't a scientific decision. This was a political decision because not every country did it. And the results, as we've shown you on the graph, Mike, are completely different here. And one has to look at this, Mike, and go back to your original assessment and say, is the policy of strict lockdown actually driving up excess mortality, but also COVID-19 deaths as well. I think mm. we showed you some of the reasons why mm. that might be true earlier in the program. Uh, and we'll just finish this by putting the usual caveat on there that uh, Mexico is in the non-lockdown category because their lockdown, and it was only described as a loose lockdown in any case, didn't start until the 2nd of April, by which time they were well into their uh, their situation anyway. Um, so uh, Sweden is uh, more or less getting it right. Well, look at this. I mean, this has been featured by Peter Hitchens and many others. Uh, Sweden's getting it right. Now, Mike, this is interesting. Take a look at this graph. Let's talk about flattening the curve, Mike. If you plug in Sweden's actual data into Neil Ferguson, Dr. Death's notorious computer model from Imperial College, this is what you get in terms of a result. Now, is that not stunning? Yes. Or is that not stunning? So, uh, as you can see, the actual in red there uh, is just minor. So, in, in other words, this proves that Neil Ferguson and Imperial College's modeling, Mike, uh, was nonsense. Was something of science fiction, basically. And this was used as the centerpiece for the UK basically changing from adopting the Swedish policy. That's what Boris Johnson, Patrick Valance, and Chris Whitty presented to the public first. Mm -hmm. The exact same plan, more or less. This is what the Swedes are saying as well. They're saying they were happy when Boris Johnson came to the podium, Mike, in, in that week in March. They said, this is our plan. It gave Sweden a lot of confidence at the time. They were so excited that the UK government chose to go for their more sort of reasonable science-based approach. But instead, the public backlash was massive. And it became also a politically correct argument. How dare Boris Johnson use the term herd immunity, we're not animals, uh, cried the opposition and But the we press. need to say, of course, that the public backlash was, was strong because the public had been primed for weeks by the mainstream press. They had. They had been primed by images coming out of China mm -hmm. for a month, uh, horror images and so forth. So there, there's a whole combination of things that drove that. But the point being, Mike, that the Imperial College uh, modeling is completely... Uh, discredited right now. So there's no legitimacy at all to it. And there's still people that are still clinging on to it. I, I keep saying people saying, referring to it. We, we say because of social distancing and because of the lockdown, we've saved hundreds of thousands of lives as a result. Well, as we can show from the Oxford University report, uh, Dr. Hen Professor Hennigan and others had said, no, the virus peaked mm. before the lockdown in terms of uh, acceleration and growth rate. And, and really, you could put a nail on it on April 8th. So everything we're seeing after this, Mike, mm. is really just really uh, a pantomime of guided by the science. Mm. So, But in terms of details, if you want to see any more uh, details in terms of the Swedish story, this is an article that we have up at 21st Century Wire, why Sweden has already won the debate on COVID lockdown policy. And this has got data, it's got all the details, Swedish policy, talks. we talk about Swedish uh, constitution, uh, where the onus is on the citizens, 
Mike, in terms of public uh, welfare and public safety. And so there's a very strong social contract between the citizens and the government. So the government doesn't feel the need to, to basically unleash the, the police on the Swedish public. They trust the Swedish public that's going to make the right decisions in terms of common sense measures, social distancing, limiting travel, etc. And they're keeping the bars and the restaurants open with some precautions in there. It's really up to the owners at their discretion. Mike, we see similar things happening in the U.S. with non-lockdown states. And again, in the U.S., if you look at the data, the non-lockdown states are performing as good or better than the strict lockdown states. Mm. So we're not surprised by those results. Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's come back to the UK and mention this, the In Proportion project. Uh, and they're asking, is COVID-19 in proportion? Uh, they're saying seasonal flu respiratory illness strikes every year. Compared to a typical epidemic, the current COVID-19 pandemic is hitting the UK badly. However, since 1995 in England and Wales, there have been four seasons that were nearly as bad and one season that was worse. That's 1999 to 2000. Uh, and uh, so they're asking uh, draconian lockdowns were not considered necessary then. Why are they now? And just to put the, the graph on this, this is the graph they've produced showing that the 1999 uh, flu season was worse in terms of uh, overall mortality uh, than the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. Now, of course, uh, the flu season would normally be sort of November to February, March time, whereas this, the, the, the deaths are ramping up later in the year uh, for this. But nonetheless, in terms of overall numbers, uh, again, we have somebody else asking the question, why is the lockdown necessary? Now, in terms of uh, the response to the lockdown, uh, King's College here have pushed out this report. Uh, the three groups reacting to life under lockdown. Uh, and they've uh, classified uh, three groups here. Uh, first of all, the accepting. Uh, and they're saying that uh, this is 48% of the UK population are the, are the accepting. Uh, they're saying 12% of that group uh, say they're losing sleep over coronavirus. Uh, very few are arguing uh, more with people they uh, live with uh, or feeling more anxious and depressed. Uh, they say 28% say they're certain or fairly, uh, very or fairly likely to face financial difficulties. Uh, and uh, they're least likely to check social media daily or more often for uh, coronavirus updates uh, and so on. The next group that they're talking about are the suffering. Uh, and this is uh, 44%. Uh, and they're saying that 93% of this group report feeling more anxious and depressed since lockdown began. 64% have slept less or worse than usual, uh, the highest of the groups. Uh, and 34% they think about coronavirus, say they think about coronavirus all the time. Now, one of the questions that was being asked on the live stream yesterday was about the level of suicide, which has effectively gone through the roof uh, compared to the normal, the normal uh, as a result of this. And really there was no uh, useful response from Boris Johnson or his uh, uh, colleagues about that. Uh, they don't seem to be too concerned, or at least they don't seem to think that there's anything can be done about that. Uh, but uh, moving on then, the the, uh, the last group is the resisting. Uh, and uh, apparently that is 9%. Uh, and they're saying that just 49% of the resisting uh, say that they're following lockdown rules completely or nearly all the time, uh, which is the lowest of any of, of the other two groups. And they're saying that 53% uh, and 49% respectively support lockdown measures and additional police powers. Uh, 
even amongst the resisting group. Uh, and so one of the things that, uh, that it seems to be coming out of this report and one of the things that uh, the government seems to be uh, gloating about the most uh, is uh, that how compliant the British public has been to all this so far, uh, despite uh, you know the, any questions there might be about it. Uh, and of course, we've got to remember again, as Brian was pointing out in Wednesday's programme, uh, behavioural science and beha behavioural insights is something that the government is piling so much money into. It's part of the thing that 77 Brigade, in combination with the uh, Rapid Response Unit in the Cabinet Office and other uh, government departments are working so hard on uh, is to gather the data for the behavioural scientists. Um, I think uh, uh, it's been a surprise to them how compliant the public have been over this. The question is how much longer that's going to go on for. And go, go back to that uh, study there by King's College, Mike. I just want to point out a sort of fundamental error here uh, in how they're presenting their uh, data. Uh, what they probably should highlight, Mike, more is that uh, the resisting at 9% will actually uh, the resisting are all suffering as well. So those two categories can be put together very easily. Uh, and this is something that you, you do see this compartmentalization in terms of the analysis. Mm. Um, and they're saying that people are just resisting just because we have skeptics and uh, they're, they're a real pain in society. No, uh, if they're resisting, it's probably because they're suffering on some level as mm. well, either socially, either financially, professionally or just the 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 stress mike of not uh, of a lack of freedom or not allowing uh, civil liberties to be observed and things like that they've shut the world down okay they've shut countries down they're trying to shut the world down and this is going to have devastating impact on people psychologically knowing that they can't uh, attend weddings they can't get married they can't form relationships they can't see their family and so forth the longer you keep going with this uh, the more lasting damage it's going to do. It's going to take more than just a kind of Queen's speech, Mike, a few uh, words of uh, consolation uh, to, to heal people. I don't think it's going to be that easy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, well, in the U.S., then, Elon Musk speaking out on this. Well, Elon Musk, the outspoken CEO of Tesla, Mike, took a little bit of extra time during the quarterly earnings speech that he was giving to his shareholders uh, boasting, mind you, of $16 million in profit uh, for the last quarter. So Tesla's uh, cl clawing back some of those losses, Mike. But uh, Elon Musk basically saying that uh, this is fascism in the United States, uh, that people shouldn't, shouldn't be uh, arrested or threatened with arrest for leaving their homes, as we've seen uh, in a few different states, Mike. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, news reports, obviously, videos on social media showing a lot of these situations. Not getting a lot of mainstream coverage, though, but it's good to see Elon Musk stepping up on this. And he's also been tweeting out statistics as well, challenging the official narrative and getting absolutely ravaged uh, by his opponents and the pro-lockdown mob in the mainstream media and people who are close to government who are just determined to keep the lockdown policy in place as long as possible. I can't imagine who would want to do that, Mike, but we might get onto that a little bit later. Uh, possibly. Now, uh, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, your support would be much appreciated, much needed. Uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there if you can. Uh, and uh, a reminder that uh, uh, AV11 uh, live stream uh, is available from the UK Column website. Uh, the uh, URL is on the screen at the moment or from alternativeview.co.uk. 
uh, and you'll be speaking at that event, Brian Gerrish as well, and, and a whole range of, of uh, speakers. Now, let's move on to the issue of a free press. Uh, Patrick, um, here is uh, Neil Bush. He's the US ambassador to the OSCE. Uh, and uh, he was saying that uh, at an event a couple of days ago that a free press is crucial for a comprehensive response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Their work serves to keep societies informed, to promote proper health measures and to counter false or misleading information. Uh, so this is the government message to the OSCE. Uh, that was echoed by uh, our old friend Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister, uh, who said newspapers are the lifeblood of our communities and we need them now more than ever. Their role as a trusted voice and their ability to reach isolated communities is especially vital at this time. Now, the, folk, the, the key thing here is trusted voice. Uh, and this is something that we're starting to see more and more, this idea that you should really only be going to reliable, reliable sources for your information. Um, so now, Patrick, many people um, over the last week or so had been commenting, sending us emails, commenting about the fact that uh, the mainstream press in the UK had been co uh, covering uh, the, the front pages of their newspapers with uh, advertisements from the government. Mm. Uh, and uh, just to highlight where that has come from, uh, here is the News Media Association. Government partners with newspaper industry on COVID-19 ad campaign. So it's vital to have a free press, Patrick, but only one where it's where it's in partnership with the government, because that that's that's why it's so vital for the government to have a free press. Uh, so what's so, this? So they're paying for it. They're basically. paying for it. Absolutely paying for it. So so um, uh, so what they're saying is uh, the government and newspaper industry have formed a three-month advertising partnership to uh, help keep the public safe uh, and the nation united through the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, because, as I say, you should really only be going to trusted voices. And just to reinforce that, UNESCO pushed out uh, a, a little video offering some advice about how you make sure your children are getting the right information. Let's just have a look at that. Are you a parent? Now that you are spending more time at home, why not teach your child how to spot false content and rumours? Find a piece of information online that is confirmed as disinformation and ask your child these questions. Who made this? For whom was this made? Is it from a reliable source? During the COVID-19 outbreak, only trust official information sources and credible media outlets. Do not share unverified information. This is a message from UNESCO. So that was a message from UNESCO, and of course, everybody should follow that, absolutely. Wow, so the UN is pushing that out, basically. Yes. So, and I'm sure all of those uh, people in the advert are fully able and qualified to spot fake news from non-trusted sources. I suppose The Guardian doesn't get included, or the BBC, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, The Sun. Perhaps. They're all getting money from the government now. Of so, course, this this follows on from yeah. from Dim Karen Cross's review, uh, where she said, "Really, the government's got to start uh, helping the mainstream press to survive." But was that UNESCO video not the most egregious piece of propaganda you've ever seen? No, because what they're they're getting into basically this soft censorship, basically. So the UN's giving their backing to that. I've always said, Mike, that the print. Uh, media, the newsstands that we see in every news agent, every mm -hmm. supermarket, all it is, because obviously sales have tanked, uh, but all it is, is a propaganda board. It's point of purchase for propaganda. 
And now we can see if the government is subsidizing the mainstream press in terms of billions and terms of advertising revenue every year, um, then effectively that's become a government propaganda point of point of sale, a mm. uh, little kiosk basically in every single store. So the messaging is getting out there no matter where you're going uh, to buy your food or shopping and so forth. So not much in the papers themselves, but the front page is still very important. So who owns that? Uh, owns the public mind to some to some degree. Absolutely. Um, so let's move on to Bill Gates. And uh, well, what's Dr. Knut Vitaski uh, been up to? Well, uh, a lot of people had seen the previous interview by Journeyman Pictures, Mike, mm -hmm. uh, done by John Kirby, who, by the way, John Kirby is one of the unsung heroes uh, in this uh, crisis. What he's done is, and what Journeyman have done is very admirable. They put out these interviews. That I believe they intended to make a film, a documentary, during this crisis, to, but they put out the rushes of the interviews. Uh, and, and it's been a huge uh, benefit to people in terms of information. You've, obviously, you've got these top experts in epidemiology and so forth that are being interviewed by John Kirby, who's done a great job asking the right questions and getting down to what the real story is. Now here's Nut Wachowski. Uh, he is a top uh, epidemiologist, former head of biostatistics, epidemiology and research design at Rockefeller University. So obviously he knows his stuff in terms of pandemics, Mike. But this is what Dr. Nut said here. She says, we don't need a vaccine to get out of it. He's talking about the current uh, pandemic uh, spiral or the threat of a second wave. He says, we don't. Sorry, Bill Gates, but we don't need a vaccine. Uh, it is nice to have uh, in case the virus should come back again. Uh, and if we then have a vaccine, uh, then that would be nice, he said. And he did give the caveat that it was had been properly safety tested and so forth uh, and had gone through all the different uh, uh, regulations. He says, do we need one right now? No. He says, we don't need a vaccine because we see already herd immunity developing in two or three weeks. We have herd immunity, so it's over. So he makes an important point here, Mike. He says, why do you need a vaccine? Uh, Bill Gates is saying we need to be locked up in our homes until a vaccine's ready. We need to not shake hands, Dr. Fauci is saying in the United States, until the vaccine is ready, as if the vaccine was some sort of panacea. And now the professionals, the real scientists are coming out, Mike, and basically saying that, well, the, A, you're not going to very easily get a vaccine for a coronavirus, which is a cold virus, first of all. And there's a difference between getting a vaccine for that and something like the flu, which is uh, the efficacy of the flu vaccine, Mike, is hugely debatable, as is the safety aspect. But at least you could they can isolate the influenza a little bit better chance of doing that than with a coronavirus. Mm. So Witkowski has basically blown that right out of the water. And he goes on as well, and this is an important point he's made here. He's talking about uh, how this happened, how we got to this point where people acquiesced to a lockdown. He said, if people would be more active, uh, if they would take part in political decisions, if they would be more awake, uh, if they would fight for their democratic rights, this would never have happened. It's a failure of the people to take control of the government and to let the government take control of them. This is a scientist saying this. One of the most eminent scientists in his field, Mike, that's what he's saying. Uh, strong words by Dr. Witkowski. Uh, and I want to remind people of what he said uh, when we last spoke about after his first interview was made public. 
Bear in mind, it's spring right now. Mm -hmm. We're coming very closely into summer, and the government is still wanting to maintain a lockdown policy. Dr. Witkowski said for respiratory disease, the flu ends during springtime. People spend more time outdoors because outdoors the viruses cannot easily spread. We're told not to go outdoors. Think about that for a minute. So this is a form of containment, says Dr. Witkowski, spending more time outdoors. So the scientists are saying, Mike, to spend more time outdoors in the spring, that this is a great way to contain and combat COVID-19, the invisible enemy that we're at war against. Okay, uh, but the, the government's saying, no, don't go outside, stay indoors, save lives, fight the coronavirus. So how, how is it that the scientists are saying, real scientists who work in this field are saying one thing and government is saying another, and yet government, Mike, is also saying, we're being guided by the science. All along the way, we're being guided by science. How is this possible? So, but go and look at this interview here. This is Dr. Wachowski. We put the interview as well as the full transcript up at 21stCenturyWire.com. It's an hour and four minutes long. I think that's required viewing for everybody. Do share it far and wide as much as possible. This is a very important interview. And I think if more people heard the Wachowski interview, Mike, that itself would actually save lives. Mm. Because as we've shown earlier in the program, Mike, I think what we're beginning to prove is that lockdown policy is costing lives. It's not saving lives. Um, well, another important interview was, uh, was Bill Gates, who appeared on Stephen Colbert's Late Show uh, a week or so ago. Uh, let's just have a look at what he had to say. Uh, here we go. He, uh, he said, the good news is most of the work we are going to do to be ready for pandemic two, I call this pandemic one, uh, are also the things we need to do to minimize the threat of bioterrorism. So he introduced the idea that there's going to be a second uh, pandemic coming down the road in the not too distant future. And he also interested, sorry, he also introduced the idea uh, that uh, we are going to be facing bioterrorism in the not too distant future. Now, of course, uh, one of the things that Stephen Colbert was uh, was pushing on his audience was the idea that uh, Bill Gates had predicted pandemic one, the, this current uh, pandemic, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and that nobody had listened. And, and the reason that Bill Gates said what he has said on screen here at the moment is because uh, Colbert asked, uh, what is the next thing that uh, you're predicting that we should all be listening to? So I'm going to say we probably should be listening to what Bill Gates is talking about here. I think uh, his, his the look on his face there, I chose a still from the, from the video because uh, I think that's quite appropriate. This is his attitude. He loves what's going on at the moment. Uh, I think that uh, he is expecting a pandemic too. Uh, and he is also expecting bioterrorism. Uh, to be not too far down the road as well. We've got to be fearful in our beds. They're going to combine uh, this narrative of uh, the pandemic along with the uh, war against terrorism narrative and ramp this fear factor up significantly over the next period of the time. So Stephen Colbert was blowing smoke up uh, Bill's proverbial scuzzy port uh, about predicting this first pandemic. And then Bill Gates just casually drops this bioterrorism talking point in there. Government's not even talking about bioterrorism yet, Mike. How is it that Bill Gates knows in advance that there's going to be a bioterrorism situation 
Um, does he know? Well, clearly he knows something that the public and government don't know. Well, he's uh, usually talking about things a couple of years before government or certainly several months before government's talking about them. And that's just because he's so wise yes. and he has a great uh, a palantir uh, that he has access to, a crystal ball yes. where he can see the future. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to say that it's not a secret that bioterrorism is a threat, that bioweapons uh, have been developed in the background, have been researched in different guises. There's weaponization of viruses, Mike, that are being done uh, in the United States National Institute of Health called gain-of-function studies. Those are effectively biological biowarfare, but done under the guise of pharmaceutical research. Mm. That's the only difference, okay? It's not a secret, but the press isn't talking about it. Mm. Government's not talking about it. So it's giving Bill Gates the advantage there to sort of lead the narrative. So who elected Bill Gates uh, to be the head of public health policy for the world? Um, this is the question. That is the question, and that's the question that we will finish on today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Uh, thank you for joining us, especially if you're from 77 Brigade uh, or the uh, Rapid Response Unit. Uh, we will be back as usual on uh, Monday at 1 p.m. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.